0: Morning, everyone. Morning. <laughs> praise the Lord. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. It's time to worship. So, if you're able, come on and stand to your feet and let's give God praise. Us. It changes what we see What we Spirit of the living God We only want to hear your voice We're hanging on every word I come out of agreement With the lie that you have left me on my own Oh I'm not alone I come out of a green with the worry and the fear I've come to know No they won't have a hold on me protector you never never never, never let me go know. You said you wouldn't leave me, and you won't. You're right by my side, protected. I come into agreement with the truth that you are, who you say you are. I can trust your heart. Come into agreement with what heaven has declared over my life. Because I know that you fight for me. No evil will tease or torment me. No weapon, no worry will prosper against me. No darkness, no evil will tease or torment me. All power, dominion to one name is given. My fortress, my freedom, my my Jesus of power dominion to one
1: together. <clears throat> Dear Lord, on this day of the fall kickoff of La Hio Community Church, I pray that we may have the opportunity to rethink our priorities and place you first in our hearts. May today be the first day that we take concrete steps to draw ourselves closer to you. May we reach out to our community and bring them closer to you as well. Bless our children and students as they return to school. Protect them from evil, that they may grow not only technically and skillfully, but also in faith and godly wisdom. May we share the peace that you give us with those around us. And may we give ourselves completely to you and trust you fully. Please lead us through today's message and help us to grow in our faith. In just Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we're so glad that you're here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect Card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect Card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out the connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. It's easy to get distracted by our busy lives. We lose focus on what matters most and forget to spend time with our Creator and Savior. Let's reconnect with the Lord. We invite you and your family to join us Wednesdays at 6.30pm for our weekly prayer night. Gather with us as we take time to refocus our lives on God and refresh our spirits in His presence.
3: Well, hey, Hung Wei, thank you for that prayer, uh, the band, the music, my gosh. Um, I come to church for the music and the prayer. It kind of tapers off after that, so um, <laughs> hang in there with us for the rest of the service. Uh, we are starting a um, a new series. We, we tend to—I I, I like to organize the year into series uh, rather than just one-off here, there, everywhere, but to have some continuity in how we come at God's word. I mean, some churches do this. They say we start in... Genesis 1-1, and we finish in Revelation. And and so they spent seven years just preaching through the Bible. There was a famous guy uh, in in, uh, Philadelphia who decided to preach through the book of Romans. It took him 10 years. Um, Children were conceived. People graduated. There were weddings and funerals over that whole time. Uh, The church said, is this the only thing in the Bible, the book of Romans? And this fellow's attitude was, well, if you had to get rid of all the rest of it, this is the one you want, right? So the idea of continuity is super important, and that's why we really, really, really encourage you to read through the Bible. To read through the Bible methodically is a great thing. Uh, We don't want to spend a seven-year series going from Genesis to Revelation, but we want to touch on all that along the way in any combination of things that we do each week. And so we tend to, I tend to, uh, we do sometimes book studies. Let's go through the book of Acts, John, whatever, Old or New Testament. Uh, otherwise, we, we deal with themes. And re- the reason we deal with themes, it allows us, allows me to say, hey, here's something that might uh, touch you right where you are, but let's see where you're going to get the answers to understand what, how you frame and understand whatever you're facing, whatever you're experiencing, whether it's success or failure. Uh, fear and frustration, or absolutely ecstatic joy about living. And we want to do that so that in turn, as you're reading through methodically uh, your way through the Bible, uh, you're able to say, wow, these are the themes I keep bumping into. And so a a church that says we just talk about themes with no reference to the Word of God or the theology that comes out of the Word of God, theology is just how we interpret and apply the biblical text, uh, it's superficial. And if a church just goes through a word-by-word you know journey through the bible without tying it into the actual issues that we face it becomes theoretical and so what we try to do as a as a worshiping community as a growing community is to to come at the word of god on its own terms not reading into it what our culture thinks it should say but reading from it uh what the word of god actually says and that we can all agree on that's what it says now the the conversation is what do we do with it how do we understand it so we're launching into a, a series uh today around seven questions seven questions and so uh, did you know that each of us has a question about ourselves uh, we're asking the world to answer now all these seven questions will resonate with you you'll say oh yeah 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 every time i go through one of these lists where they say there's this many kinds of people and there's this many categories and personality types whether it's the enneagram or myers-briggs or whatever uh, every one of them i go oh my gosh that's me right there I read the second one, oh, no, that's me. And I read the third, one, oh, my gosh, no, actually, that's probably be more me. And all of them I resonate with, so so do you. But you'll hit one question or one issue in any of these assessments that you go, that one really makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that one. You go, ah, oh, it's probably the one you are. And you're identifying yourself there. Or you'll say, oh, my gosh, somebody understands me. This is really how I come at life. Maybe think of it this way. If somebody throws you something, Uh, and both hands are free, you'll grab it with your dominant hand. If you have something in your hand, like a baby, and somebody throws you a towel because the baby has just shared some of its inner journey with you, you, you'll grab it, they'll throw it, and you'll grab it with your left hand, right? So we're all kind of ambidextrous when it comes to processing the world, but we tend to live out of one way that we present to the world. This is a way of saying, uh, of these seven big questions, you, you'll you resonate with one of them, but it's important to understand all of them. One, to completely understand uh, who you are, but also to be able to relate to the people in the world around you. And not so you can compartmentalize and pigeonhole people. Ah, oh, you're an Enneagram 4, I've seen you people. Or you're this, you know, but that's, that's, that's um, just limiting. But to say, I'm thinking I'm understanding uh, something about you, a... Uh, Paula Mulford has put together this delightful way of looking at people as four animal types. There are dolphins, there are peacocks, there are panthers, and there are owls. And You go, that's ridiculous and silly. Yeah, until you hear her present. And pretty soon the whole room is buzzing going, oh my gosh, I think I am a this but with a little of this. And I won't take the time to go into all of them. Uh, You can ask Paula about that. But it's fascinating the way the Word of God wants all of us to come together and at the same time allows us to, to live out of a way of seeing the world that might be different from everybody around us. That creates conflict, but it's also a super neat complementary way to understand what's going on in you, the different ways you, you commit things, depending on what works and what doesn't. With the, with the person with whom you are married, the children in your family, the grandchildren in your extended family, the people with whom you work, and all of a sudden you realize, okay, this diversity is a really great thing if all of us are really trying to get to the same thing. Uh, That is, if we're trying to get to goodness and righteousness and that kind of thing, right? So, did you know each of us has a question about ourselves that we are asking the world to answer? Uh, um, A fellow named Mike Foster lives here in San Diego. We've had him come preach before uh, he's written a book called Seven Primal Questions, and he helps us understand what our primal question might be and, and uh, what we're asking of the world. And He helps us to understand that if we understand our primal question, we'll see that it's probably our primary superpower. Uh, I'm not going to be preaching from that book, but I'll be preaching on this theme. Uh, Mike comes at it from a standpoint of here's all the people I've worked with over the years and how how I've come to understand what people bring to the party. Now, this doesn't discount any other assessment. This simply gives you a bead on on where people are living as they come uh, into uh, experiencing the world and expressing themselves in the world. So I'm not preaching the book. So I would suggest you get this book, 7 Primal Questions. There's a workbook that comes with it. Work that through. You might be frustrated that, hey, Steve's not talking about anything in this book. Not to discount the book, it's just that the book is an interesting presentation, and I'm saying, "Gosh, you know, these seven questions actually have a biblical source. These seven questions are actually supported by a biblical theology." And so, to start with the seven questions in a popular book is great, and, and, and I'm not discounting any that he I think he's saying. I'm just saying until you take it to a biblical source, it's just another book. Until you see a theological uh, understanding of this, taking what the Bible says, and then interpreting it in a way that allows you to access the reality of this in the world. That's when they both come together. So the book is a great resource. Get the book. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll thoroughly enjoy it. And So here's the seven questions. Uh, and by the way, there's so many questions we ask about life. Is there a God, et cetera. But th- this is, um, seven qu- these are seven questions that we will ask and see if you can in initially resonate with any of these, because over the weeks, and as you read the book, you'll go, I, get, I think I understand what my question is. So the first question, am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? These are seven questions, seven primal questions that we ask. Uh, I was testing this out, talking to a friend of mine uh, who's insanely successful by any standard you want to bring. Not just superficial standards, of power, prestige, fame, fortune, but of all the kinds of ways you could say that person is living a successful life. And I said, so of these questions, um, and he's very familiar with the content of the book. I said, of these questions, which is the one that you resonate with? He says, am I wanted? I didn't see that coming. I had assumed you'd say, "Am I successful?" And of course, you see, you can you can you can access and answer your questions through a lot of different avenues. Am I safe? Am I secure? Am I loved? Am I wanted? Am I successful? Am I good enough? Do I have a purpose? Have you ever had a problem with a person of authority, and and the problem isn't yours; it's them, and the way that they're administering administering authority. Maybe as a as a plebe at the Naval Academy. Some senior classmate, a wonderful person who'd said all the right things to get into the academy, you realize is a psycho. And now that he has control over, he's, now that this, this 20-year-old has control over 18-year-olds, it's, it's the, 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 the academy is run amok with dysfunction. And you realize, what is going on here, right? Um, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that this guy doesn't really believe he's good enough. And so he's got to assert himself over all these other people to say, if you challenge me, you're threatening the question I'm trying to answer. Now, these questions are unconscious in us. Nobody walks around going, hey, Steve, am am I safe? Steve, I'm Steve here. Are you, you know, am I? No. But we act out of them. And as I read this book, I thought, gosh, I can think of people I would ask, as a younger person, an innocent question of somebody in authority. They'd freak out. And I thought, gosh, was I being disrespectful, insolent? Was I just being 17? asking a question of somebody in authority of whom I thought knew all things and had complete command of the universe. And if I was only 25, I would too. If I was only 30, you know. But say a high school teacher would flip out. And I thought, what did I do wrong? And another teacher took me aside and said, you did nothing wrong. You just pressed that guy's button. And now I understand what I was, the button I was pressing was that he was dealing with one of his questions. His question was, the, the answer he was getting from me about the question he didn't know he was asking was no. No, you're not good enough. Or no, you're not this. Or no, you're not that. Now, c- there's a whole other bunch of layers about that. Um, but this is the, this is the practical, re- practical reality of this. Sometimes we do what we do unconsciously and it has incredible uh, consequences that we don't like. We wonder, gee, I just have to try harder to be better. It's not going to happen until you really understand the question you're trying to get answered. So life is better, makes more sense when you know your question. And underlying these questions is the wound we all bear due to our alienation from God. Now, Mike does a great job in this book. But I think think Mike is writing a popular book, and he doesn't want to get into biblical stuff or theology because it won't quite have the result in the marketplace that he would like. It's not a, not a criticism, it's just an observation. And so he would say, you know, we have to be self-healers. And, we, you know, and I'm thinking, mm, that really sounds good, but let me unpack that a little bit. Actually, underlying these questions isn't our family of origin. You can't blame your mom and dad for the question you ask. You come out of a perfect family and you're going to have a question. And it'd be influenced by your experience in your family, but it's really your interpretation and understanding of your family. Years ago, uh, 20 years ago or so, a little bit more, a book came out called Reviving Ophelia. Written by uh, some psychologists, psychiatrists, about uh, young girls going through all kinds of horrible issues. I I, I was a youth pastor at the time, and dealing with girls who were cutting and denying themselves food, and I'm visiting them in psychiatric wards, and and comforting, them, working with their families and trying to understand the issues. Uh, and so the parents, of course, were saying, what did we do wrong? And these girls were smart. At, at 11, they could have run the universe and I would have been happy to follow their command. If you've ever been around a 10 or 11-year-old girl, just go with it. They are smart, they're articulate, they know how to get things done. Why by the time they're 12, 13, 14, 15, are they upside down and inside out and, and, and feeling like they're lost in the, in the cosmos? Well, the parents were so concerned it was their fault and that what the psychologist ended up saying is, yeah, there's, there's family dysfunctions that contribute to this, but for the most part, the families we're seeing are really working hard to get it right. But we live in a toxic culture for girls. A toxic culture that gives girls a 1,001 messages about what they're not, what they should be, what they could be, what they will never be. Expectations, limitations, big, bold messages, super subtle, understated messages. And these girls were just not able to cope with it. Who could? We all get these messages. We all live in a toxic world. Well-intentioned, well-meaning, but toxic. And I'd like to blame everybody in it except for I'm part of the toxic world. I'm part of the dysfunctional system. So this is what the Bible tells us. Underlying all these questions is the wound that we all bear due to our alienation from God. And the root of our woundedness is described in Genesis chapter 3. And I won't go into Genesis chapter 3. One and two are are describing creation from two different perspectives, complementary perspectives. This is creation, a good creation. All things that God has done are good. And in chapter three, we see a a dilemma, uh, a significant crisis moment where humankind says, thank you, that's a wonderful contribution, but I think I can take it from here. I got a better way to go. And since that moment, it's been disastrous for humankind. And all of us have this wound in us. Our families might Try to deal with it, but they might exacerbate it. Everything can contribute to it or relieve it, but it's all a mess. And we all work hard to try to get it right. And out of our not okay core, I know there's not something something not okay with me. And by the way, theologically, there's been all kinds of attitudes about, well, this initial sin of Adam and Eve is now a curse that every human being bears. Now, some people have said, I reject that. Everybody gets to make their own reality. That was them, I'm me. Okay, great tell me about your wound. If it's not from Adam and Eve, where does your wound come from? And even if it is from Adam and Eve, you're still responsible for your wound. It's not your fault, but you're responsible for dealing with it. Um, others you know, have said, well, just, just pretend it's not there. Well, that works really well for like two seconds until you, either you have your next thought or somebody walks in the door with a thought. So out of our not okay core, we yearn and long for a yes to validate our core need. We're asking these questions because we're alienated from God. Therefore, we're alienated from ourselves. Therefore, we are alienated from one another. And all we're trying to get to is yes. So when I I talk back to the person in authority, no matter how respectful I am, even if if I'm an immature adolescent, they're going to be on the defensive and go, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm hearing no. I'm not whatever I think I need. I'm looking for yes here, buddy. And if you're in a system that requires that person authority, allows that person authority to have to be vicious or dysfunctional under the color of authority, they they have a right legally to expect yes compliance. And you're not complying. You know this is BS. But if you if you push back, they go, ah, oh, well, I think we need to come out of the car, just sit here, you know. And, and this is the umpteenth time uh, this black kid's been pulled over. And, and, and they're going, well, hey, uh, I'll tell you what you, you and the whole system going to do with yourselves. And the policeman goes, ah, okay, here's what's going on. And, you know, we get these, we get these scenarios. And we can paint them in every possible combination you want, but it's at it's some level of that. This not okay core yearns for yes. Validate me. And how it works in marriage is often uh, men desperately want their wife to validate them. Women want the men in their lives to validate them. Children want their parents to validate them. Parents want their children to validate them. It's all reasonable when you look at it, you have a need. There's nothing wrong with having a need. But there are implications of having a need that is unresolved. You see where this goes? So Psychologists could say, if they were secular psychologists who the Brazilian Great Christian theo- psychologist. But if, if a secular person said, That's that theology that you, you've been burdened with that theology, that whole sin thing, it just crushed your spirit. You go, No. The whole sin thing has revealed reality and my spirit is bummed out because I'm living reality. You can't talk me out of it, psychologist. The psychologist needs to say, You know, it's funny, we have a theory exactly like that, but we don't tie it to theology. So where you, you bump into this reality all over the place and either you have somebody telling you with good intentions, deny it. Or I get it, I I know, put it on someone else, blame somebody, scapegoat it. Or what do you do? Ah, maybe I should just face it and deal with it and figure out what the implications are of it. I I love the way the the people in uh, the 12-step programs roll. They don't show up and spend the first night, I think. um, I've been to some AA meetings. Some people say, well, you talk about it like you know about it. Come to the meeting. I went to the meeting, I thought, well, just what I thought it was. They don't start with another great thing about me and what brings me here tonight. And they start with I am a mess and I have no control over it. and I don't know what to do with it, so here I am. And, you know, welcome, Steve. You know, whatever. The, you know, they create this environment where a person can say, "I'll own who I am," and you don't have to show up knowing what to do about it. And they give you a structure, and a process. Are we together on this so far? So we're not talking about oh he now he's talking about therapy. Yes, I am talking about therapy because all scripture is therapeutic. I'm not talking about quoting Bible verses and being disconnected from your your spirit, your soul, your heart, your mind. No, I'm saying it's an integrated whole. We have a Greek way of looking at the life, no no offense to the Greeks, but the the platonic view of life is there's we're, you know there's spiritual people here and non-spiritual people here and it's, There's this discontinuity. A Hebraic view of life is what we have. We're a complete whole created by God. If we deny the fact that we're a complete whole, we'll deny the necessary things we need to do to unify and integrate that whole person. You follow me on that? This is why we are absolutely enthusiastic advocates of the Bible as our foundational text. This is why we don't like it when people misuse the Bible or abuse the Bible, and we don't like it when people dismiss the Bible Or disrespect the Bible because they're cutting themselves off. It's like a thirsty person denying water. Off the sand, please. More salt, please. So, God coming into the world in Jesus the Messiah answers these questions with yes. This is the amazing thing. Jesus is God's yes to the questions we're asking. Am I safe? Yes. Am I secure? Yes. Am I good enough? Yes. Good enough in a context. Let's put that in context. You were made good and Christ is enough to help you find that goodness that you yearn for and, and believe should define you. And so we see in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. For no matter how many promises God has made they are yes in Christ. All those promises you see in the Old Testament all these statements from God are fulfilled in Christ He says yes. If we take that as a superficial thing and just superficially say, yes, Jesus is my yes, and deny what he's saying yes to, a a, a transformation, a redemption, a salvation, uh, we cut ourselves off even from the yes. So we have all kinds of ways of gaming this as people. But until we come to terms with the fact that no one but God can fulfill us, we'll expect people to. Of course, God uses wise people to help us, but ultimately it's the Lord who heals us. There's no such thing as a self-healer. There is such a thing as a responsible person and a responsible helper. Years and years and years ago, a a wonderful Catholic theologian named uh, Henry Nowen, Henri Nowen, uh, brilliant, taught at Yale, taught at uh, all these great Ivy League schools, uh, eventually said, you know, I think I might be hiding behind my academic prestige. He left the safe environments of the Ivy League, and he went to work in a house for people with serious, serious mental issues, and emotional issues, with 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 birth issues that rendered them uh, with a lack lack of capacity to live on their own in the in the world. And he went to this house called Day Spring, and he was treated like everybody else. Somebody who didn't know who he was would just say, "Hey, Henry." and make some observation about Henry that was true. And Henry's like, what? Did you understand my credentials? You know." And so he realized, oh my gosh, I have been hiding. So it was a very powerful thing. And he wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. He said, if, I, if we don't understand our own wound, how do we help other people with theirs, right? We all walk with a limp, but we all walk together in Christ. So it's the Lord who heals us. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the early church had a, had an interesting, well, you know, he had all these smart people that God was raising up to minister to the people's needs. <clears throat> and uh, they, they kind of a, a attracted a popular way of, of people to talk of them. They would call them iatros tes suche. It's a Greek phrase, iatros, doctor tes of the suche soul. These are like doctors of the soul. These are people God uses to wisely come alongside us with compassion and help us process who we are in Christ and the dysfunctions in our life. Iatras Tesuke was flipped in the 19th century to be psychiatrist. A healer of the soul. A doctor of the soul. But ultimately, a person who brings us to a place where healing can happen. No therapist ever says, I heal people. No doctor ever in her right mind says, I heal people. They say, I, I bring people to a place where certain things can happen, and under that, those circumstances, they experience healing powerful. Never discount a doctor, a therapist, a social worker. They, are, they bring powerful healing resources to us but if we don't responsibly res- take, you know, take charge of our own lives uh, we'll miss the healing even that these resourceful people bring. So understanding ourselves and taking responsibility for ourselves is a necessary condition. Yeah but we're all saved by faith as a gift from God. Not by works but by grace. Yeah have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's a necessary condition of engaging in this incredibly good news. You see where this goes. Making an effort to respond to God and uh, to apply what God is teaching you is not works righteousness. It's the good work of His righteousness in us. Grace has legs. Grace goes somewhere. When you have God's grace, you can ship stuff like love, joy, peace, patience, you know, all the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. So otherwise, uh, if, uh, if we think that's the case, we'll be trying to heal ourselves, but uh, ultimately no one can heal themselves, and we, so we turn to God to find rest for our souls. That's what Jesus said, come, take my yoke upon you, find your rest in me, learn from me, right? And You find rest, not just in kickback for your souls, but you'll find a sense of peace, shalom, in your soul. Otherwise, we will demand of others what God alone can provide. If you're having a big problem in your family right now, it's because somebody is expecting you to provide something only God can. If you're having a problem in a friendship, in a relationship, in a church, in a company, there's people with expectations, usually unexpressed, that's more convenient, unexpressed expectations that the people around them should provide what God alone can. Now, there's lots of things we can provide, and if we, we hold them, that's evil. That's wrong. If we hold love, withhold love from a kid, withholding a BMW from a 16-year-old is not evil. Just to clarify that. In fact, you might make a case that to give a BMW to a 16-year-old is evil. As I sat before the dad in Newport Beach, she said, Ah, damn, son, what did your kid do this time? Well, I wrecked the Beamer. I said, Well, 17-year-olds do that kind of thing. He so said, what are the consequences? He goes, oh, I just, I just chewed him out. And we had a colorful way of saying it. He said, I said, then what did you do? Because I got him another beamer. Like, hey, can we talk? I think your son is the identified problem. I think you might be the source of the identified problem, right? We will demand of others what God alone can provide, and we'll try to provide for, for others things that really are setting them up for disaster. All right. These are the first several paragraphs of the sermon. I've got like nine more pages of stuff, so I will try to go through a lot more, a lot more quickly. So the first question is, am I safe? And uh, do you resonate with this question? Probably generally everybody says, yeah, yeah that's a good question to ask. Uh, maybe in a sense you go, oh my gosh, I think that's my question. So hang in there. On a scale of one to 10, how safe do you feel? Uh, what's your tolerance for risk? Uh, if you want to do a little quick personal history, did your mother, before you left the house, ever say, hey, do you need a sweater? And you were 40. Do you think your mom might have a concern about safety? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If if dad comes home with the son and says, oh my gosh, we had so much fun riding motorcycles and uh, the, the mom's kind of shaking her head, and she goes, okay, we got to get cleaned up now and get ready, because, you know, tomorrow is his first day in kindergarten. And, and the mom's thinking, thank God he came home alive, you know. The husband, not so much. The, the kid, I think I could still work with him. Um, on a scale of one to ten, do you feel safe? What's your tolerance for risk? How, okay, let me just take it to another level. Have you ever been robbed? Have you ever been mugged? Have you ever been assaulted? Were you bullied as a kid? Now it's starting to get visceral for you. I, I don't, this is not my, my question. It's kind of one of my questions, but it's not my main question. But I'm, my, it makes my stomach kind of start to churn thinking of this, you know. And if you're a person who lives out of a, the safety question, you're going, oh, this is horrible. Were you exposed to violence in your family? Is safety your greatest concern? Have you faced serious danger, traveling, doing adventure, in warfare, or Black Friday sales, more dangerous than all the previous I mentioned. The U.S. spends billions and billions of dollars trying to keep safe. San Diego police will give you a discount on your property tax if you have a security system in your home. You probably already know that. Uh, You're a new homeowner? Yeah, check that out. So, If you have a security system, you get a discount on your local taxes for having that. We just marked the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. You know where you were, what you were doing on 9-11. You remember the aftermath. Uh, Our church in the middle of La Jolla was filled with people. We said, hey, let's, you know, after it happened two days later, we're inviting people to church. It was packed. People telling their 911 stories and people wondering what they're going to do and if their family member or friend was going to be okay Everybody was concerned with safety that day. Many cities are losing residents to safety. People of every age and stage feel unsafe. Every young person on the planet was trying to work for a high tech company in San Francisco and now they're getting out of their COVID. helped them make the migration begin, but the migration continues. International migration is driven by economics and personal safety issues. Well, these are, these are economic refugees. Okay, wouldn't you be? You can't do anything in Venezuela? You, you, your kids are routinely robbed or coerced into gangs in El Salvador? You, you're tired of living in Gaza? It's not fun to live in Syria, right? Now, we want proper immigration laws, but at some point, can't you resonate with the family going, let's get the heck out of here and give this kid a better life? Every one of us is probably related to an immigrant who was Irish, German, British, French, Italian, and they came for the same darn reason. Life in Salerno was really brutal and hard. I think I'll go to New York City where everybody just is happy all day. So the Bible contains lots of passages about safety. I'll just read a quick short selection, and I bet there's dozens of these throughout the whole Bible. How about this? Uh, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. That beautiful song, Protected, that the band led us through, powerful. Yea, though I walk through the valley. It's like, yes, good news. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That's a tiny sample. Is this, is this the, the, the Bible of wishful thinking? No. It's a Bible of right-sizing our understanding of reality. And so we wisely avoid dangerous people, dangerous situations, dangerous locations, but life is more than safety. Uh, Last week, Mark Dickey was 3,400 feet under the earth, one of the premier cave explorers in in the world. In the process of going down into that cave in Turkey, some crazy intestinal thing hit him and now he has blood and, and bad stuff coming out of every pore, every orifice of his body, and he's 3,400 feet below the earth, and he can't move. He's so depleted. Yes, he needs electrolytes, but he also needs out of the 3,400-foot-deep cavern. And they got him out, and uh, I, can, I, I don't know him. I've never heard him talk. I've heard no commentary. But I can guarantee that this time next year, he's going to be in some cave somewhere. Avoid dangerous people, avoid dangerous situations, avoid dangerous locations, but life is more than safety. It takes risk to flourish, moving beyond what we think we know to what we need to know. Life isn't always as scary as we think. Doing good always involves risk. First responders run toward risk while others run away from it. In 1964, Katie Genovese is coming home late from her job. I think she was a nurse, I can't remember So she's coming off the late shift into her her neighborhood, and she's attacked by some random person. She's screaming, screaming, screaming. 37 people saw and heard Kitty Genovese screaming for help. The 38th called the police, but by then it was too late. A massive cultural moment of embarrassment, anguish, grief, loss consternation how could 37 people see this and not do something about it if you have ever been in a situation where something like this has happened you know in your heart why this happens and there's a name for it it's called the bystander effect we naturally crave safety even at others expense but the opposite of playing safe the opposite of playing it safe isn't to be reckless that's not the opposite of being safe is not being reckless. Oh, uh, you're either gonna be safe or you're gonna be reckless. No, that's not, the, that's a false binary. Fearless people are generally foolish people. I'm saying foolish because my mom said it was always bad to say stupid. Fearless people, people who truly think they're fearless are stupid people. There's an award we give to people like that every year called the Darwin Award. When People do outrageously foolish things and pay a horrible price for it. Uh, and there's so many candidates, it's a hard pick. People thinking, oh, what could possibly go wrong? You go, well, I'll tell you what could go wrong. Wise people commit to trusting God, pushing through their own fears and false safety to do otherwise risky things. Wow, that's interesting. So, a first responder is not a psycho, a, a person who just has no sense of fear. No, a first responder is a person who has a higher perspective on what constitutes good in their life and what they think they're made for. And so with a lot of wisdom and training and expertise, they go into situations that others run from. Is everybody else a coward? No, we're just not trained to go do some of the first responder things. Don't send me to help the guy. Send the guy in the the wagon that comes out of the fire department with guys who are trained paramedics. I want those guys to show up. So So why do they do this? Because their life is defined by... Love not by fear. They're the ultimate philanthropists. We think of philanthropists as people who give away massive massive amounts of money. A philanthropist is simply a person who loves humankind, who cares about people. And there's no fear in, in, in love, according to Jesus. So Jesus wasn't reckless, but wisely self-aware. His mission in life included, though he was wisely self-aware and and, and was safe. His life included suffering and sacrifice. So let me read you, I won't do much commentary, I'm going to read through some passages because I want you to get this narrative to, to help you internalize what we're talking about as it relates to a biblical view of safety. <clears throat> so once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? Now this is asked in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this version is from Luke's Gospel they replied some say john the baptist others say elijah still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life but what about you jesus asked who do you say i am peter answered you are god's messiah you're the holy one to come to redeem israel wow big answer and then jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone what it just seems like by the end of the the story like in matthew saying go make disciples of all nations tell everybody Previous to this in Luke, the the chapter before this, he healed a leper, and having healed the leper, he said, go show yourself to the priest so he can sign off and let you enter society. Don't tell anyone what happened. Was Jesus paranoid? Was he freaking out? Hey, guys, I I am the Messiah. I'm going to save the world, but don't tell anybody. Well, it was a matter of timing. It was a matter of timing. He's in Herod's neighborhood, And so here he goes, oh, I just put John the Baptist in jail, took his head off. I'd love to meet Jesus, the Messiah of the world. Could you set that up? He doesn't want a lot of distraction from the leper telling everybody uh, to his disciples telling people. He will tell it when he's ready to tell it. So the the narrative goes on. And he said, just to make it clear that what he had come to do was clear to him, the son of man, he's talking to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. We say I'll take it up. It's a beautiful gold one from Tiffany. I love it. I'll always cherish it. This cross was a symbol of death. It says, it says I'm willing to die because the Romans would manufacture these and give them to you free. As they march you to this horrible place where you die, you die the most hideous of deaths. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Wow. A couple of chapters later, we read this. At that time, Pharisees, teachers of the law, came to Jesus and said to him, Now we don't know how they said it. If they were really actually being friendly to him, hey man, I got to give you a heads up on this. Or, hey, you're so brave. Let me tell you what's going to happen to you and see what you do with it. We don't know. But here's what they said. Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, thanks, man, I'm going to hide. He said, oh, really? Go tell that fox who's sneaking around doing mischievous and and evil things to his own people. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he goes down, quotes. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. What's that? It's a beautiful picture of safety. I wanted, to, I wanted to make you safe. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. <sighs> and yet he's still willing to press on. Knowing that prophets had come over and over and over again saying, hey, come to the Lord. Look at all these safety things. Your safety's in him. And they're going, yeah, I think we can handle it. So Jesus was never insensitive to his own or other safety, but he lived a bigger, better, larger version of safety. And this is what we're talking about today. It's okay to say, am I safe? But if the answer is, I'm asking everybody, hoping to get the right answer, and not, yeah, I'm safe because I'm in the Lord. And so all the crazy things that life could throw at me and unfortunate things that might befall me, I'm going to take on because I am safe in him. Very different attitude than immature. What could possibly go wrong? Or the cynical, hey, it's dangerous out there. Don't do that trust of God thing. It's bad. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he empathized with the fears of the people he came to save. In love, by love, for love, with love. Jesus sacrificed his own comfort and his own safety to save us. And so he says to his disciples that last night together, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. i got to die for people? Well, way before that, you got to actually put up with all their inadequacies, insecurities, infallibilities. Or fallibilities. Yeah, you got to accept your friend when they do boneheaded things. you got to forgive your friend when they do things that hurt you. you got to deal with your friend when they're going through really annoying, hard things of their own making. You're going to have to be there for your friend when they're going through things of not their making but that are, are crushing them. That's laying down your life for people. It's always, usually, sometimes, possibly inconvenient or costly. So later that night, after saying those incredibly amazing words and inspiring words to his disciples, here's Jesus. He's in anguish, praying at Gethsemane, which is just a place where they, they uh, processed olives on the hillside of the, the Mount of Olives. He's sweating blood. That sounds like maybe high anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Sweating blood? I've been scared before. Uh, I mean, I've had people point guns at me. I've I've had people threaten me. I've put myself in danger doing fun things, and like, oh my gosh, why was I? What was I thinking about? But I've never sweated drops of blood. I've come home with blood all over me, but it wasn't because I was sweating drops of blood. This is an insanely uh, provocative and insightful passage we get here. The Platonic people go, see, therefore, he's, he's bogus. He can't be God. God would never do that. He would never get that close to people who are so screwed up that he would have to do it, first of all. And because God's God, he'd be so removed from that, he would he'd never be in that situation. This compromises Jesus' claim to be God. And we're saying, no, I think it might be confirming it. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. He's about to do something dangerous in the name of love. He prays for a safer way, but he knows what he needs to do. Not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. What was he praying to to go forward after this? I'm presuming, Lord, so strengthen me to do what you've called me to do, what I've come to do. Help me to fulfill my mission. So that when he died on that cross, what was his last word? "Die, It is finished. It's complete. It's done. Now, one final passage just to bring it home again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, does not own the sheep. So when the, he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So I leave you with a question. And it's this. I'll start with myself. Am I safe? Are you safe? Yes. Yes, I am safe. Yes, you are safe. Though we don't always feel like it. We don't live by foolishness or recklessness. We live by faith in the Son of God. And therefore, we have no fear in the sense that we keep giving our fear to Him and saying, Lord, teach me how to love in the face of this fear. I don't deny it, I'm fearful. I'm confessing my fear, and I'm claiming the faith you give me. So loving wisely in the power of Jesus is the safest way to live in a scary, scary world. Would you agree? And if you don't agree, I, I, I would beg you, plead with you, to consider that that is, in fact, the safest way to live in the world. Not discounting anything you've been through, not discounting the very real feeling of being unsafe but there's nowhere to go with it but here. Bring it to him and we're going to answer every question in this same kind of context as we go forward. So Lord Jesus thank you that meeting us for meeting us in this place of fear and desperation or, or that place of wishful thinking and, and false confidence and bravado. Meeting us in our ignorance or arrogance. Meeting us where we need to be met Lord in the deepest part of who we are. Helping us find an answer to that question and all these questions in you. That your promises all result in yes. And so, Lord, we pray that we could learn what that means and how to live into it. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, let's let's conclude our worship time with an offering you offering yourself to Him. No money is involved it's you is involved Uh, don't send money as a substitute in this offering you can give money We, we, we 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 love the fact that the people of god are generous and allows us to do what we do but right now your offering is you as you bring your primal questions to him let's let's worship the lord together Really? I don't know what would Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to have a party. Uh, it's a bleak day that we 're going to make bright because we 're going to walk out through that welcome center, uh passageway, a bunch of tables out there, some f- great food, uh, fun stuff for kids to do. But this is just a chance before you head off to the rest of your day to stop and say hello to people you haven't seen in a while or you 've never met, and just say hi, I'm me, and who are you?" And am I afraid? No, am I safe? no don 't have to ask that question. But ask, uh, who are you? Tell me about you, and, and get a little connected before you head off today. Uh, we're, we're launching, this is crazy to think, we have been doing this for uh, 18 years, this is going into our 19th year. And we, we said last week, we're moving into a new season, a new chapter, and there's all kinds of interesting features that will come with that. And as soon as we have them all, as soon as we understand them as your board, we'll present them to you. But we're still working on all that, but it's a very exciting time. And we ask ourselves as a church, am I safe? In this time of transition, and the resounding answer is yes. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with Him both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's get some to eat. If we can pray for you, go out to the prayer garden and then get some to eat chak chak chak